morning, rock hounders and crafters alike. Hi. New episode, Rock Osby Podcast, here, coming to you pre-recorded from Duluth, Minnesota. Wood, wood, it's getting cold here. It is getting cold, and yet the fancy hiking tennis shoes that I have make me feel as though I am... Once again, in a temperate climate instead of an Arctic suck hole. Sometimes. Arctic suck hole? Uh, not like a like a real suck hole, like a tiny little, you wake up in the morning and your bones start to hurt kind of hole. Yeah. Whatever that's called. Well, Arctic vortex has become very popular phraseology. <laughs> but we haven't had any vortexes yet, I don't think, because that's when you get like the negative 20 stuff. What's the difference between a vortex and a suck hole? That sounds like tit for tat, or not tit for tat, but like yin and yang, not yin and yang. What's tomato, a... tomato. Yeah. Even though a tomateo is certainly something I would sell. Uh, those are tomatillos. Oh. I think. Excuse me. Uh, I don't know. You know, Arctic vortex is like a, a more scientific term. Suck hole is. Suck hole feels more colloquial and feels more indicative of like. The culture of the place. It's definitely not a suck hole culturally. But today I thought that we would talk about something exciting that Megan probably gets questions about all the time. Is it exciting? Yes. We're going to talk about mental health stereotypes. I would say myths. Myths. Particularly one that I kind of believed in, sort of, until it became true for me. Well... I don't know about all of you, but the pandemic is raging worse than it ever was, and I'm getting sick of being quarantined all the time, so I can definitely say that my mental health is um, not not ideal or not as great as it has been before, and I feel like a lot of people are in the same boat. But you're trapped here with me. There are definitely worse places to be trapped, absolutely. Uh-huh. But... Um, you know, we live in a really cold place, and it's hard to to get up the motivation to get outside and get that vitamin D, and there's only so much great British baking show you can watch, and... Especially after Sue and Mel left. They were the best part of that show. My heart was broken. I refused to watch for, like, a whole 28 hours. You did. And then I begged and pleaded. So, I thought we would start with something that's really easy to disprove... Um, because as Tucker would have said, you don't think that ADHD is real until you're trapped with someone who has it and they're unmedicated in a car for an extended period of time. Say more about that. Okay, so... Or, or, or specifically, I guess, what is, what is the myth? I think the myth is just... Okay, let me just... We're going to preface this pretty heavily. Don't take anything we're saying too seriously. Like, that's just like a rule of thumb for the podcast as it is. Rockosophy is not terribly serious. Well, so that's that leads me to another good point. And here I think would be a great place for a, a content warning that, you know, we might talk about some, some things that are pretty serious and pretty upsetting. And uh, certainly, even though we tend to adopt a more humorous side to some things, it doesn't undermine how how hard it can be for people to live with mental illness and how people have been mistreated because of it. Um, 
And so certainly, like, we, we do understand the gravitas of, of, ta- of all of this and, and these lived experiences, but we certainly don't want anyone to put themselves in, in a more uh, not okay spot by listening to the podcast. Um, Trigger yeah. warning. Yeah. So just content warning, like, we are going to talk about various mental illnesses and stereotypes and situations that people might might find themselves in. So, you know, just, just be aware of that. And as always, um, if you find yourself struggling, one of the resources that I always tend to tell people about is Psychology Today has a great counselor registry if you feel like you need to find yourself a counselor. Um, a lot of places have their own independent crisis hotlines or text lines, but absolutely use those resources if, if you feel like you need to. Um, because the world sucks without you here. Yeah, in America we've got that. Actually, not all of our listenership is in America. But thank you for that wonderful PSA. So, back to what we were talking about. You were talking about, sounds like myths about ADHD. Yes. So, this one time, way back when, I read a book called Last Child in the Woods. And it was pretty opinionated. But jumping forward to my point here... Wow, that's actually a great example of uh, my point. Last Child in the Woods, ADHD. Myths, myths about ADHD. Okay, so he spends an entire chapter about how ADHD probably isn't really real. The extreme cases definitely are, but the human brain when it's developing just needs a lot more physical environmental stimuli. And when you have kids that are trapped inside all day and don't have all of these challenges of just like making your food or preparing a craft or preparing a tool or being constantly stimulated, basically the barrage of sensory stimuli that comes with being a stone age human, which we were for so long, results in hyperactivity. And if you just put a child outside for a long enough period of time, they will find ways to stimulate their brain. And then of course, not show those symptoms that's all well and good but it's not as founded as maybe the guy thought when he wrote it and as someone who was diagnosed with adhd or with add with an unspecified hyperactivity element as it says in my chart there's definitely a difference you know all that is is well and good and there's a lot of theories in psychology about that you know this sort of evolutionary psychology bent. Um, and on some level, that might be true, right? However, in a practical sense, it's still dysfunctional for our current situation in lives. You know? We still have to deal with the consequences of kiddos being understimulated and not thriving in in the traditional school environment and... All of that. And it's just like, you could say the same thing about anxiety and depression, right? That we're just kind of spinning our wheels or being upset about these these more existential life situations because we, we have time and energy to spend on them versus survival. And that still doesn't mean it's not real for our current situation, right? Like, so, we still have to deal with it. Yes. I would, my simplified version of this when we have this conversation, and believe it or not, guys, we have this conversation a lot is that if something is quote-unquote missing in your brain or your life as a result of technological advances, 
and you slap a label on it and say, okay, this is a disease, this is a deficiency, this is a mental illness that would not necessarily otherwise be considered or be diagnosable if we were Stone Age humans in a different environment, that still doesn't mean that it's not considered a disorder in a domestic sense, for lack of a better term. So, for example, you cannot compare animals and humans. I totally get that. If you have the same person and you bring them up in a modern environment and they have a bunch of disorders that are actually beneficial in a Stone Age environment, you're not going to not treat them in a modern environment just because if and when things were different, they would have been perfectly well suited. Like, that just means they're not suited. That means you're not suited to your environment. So, yeah, you're going to medicate that. Well, and what I have to say is that there's a couple of caveats. Um... Because this is controversial, right? Mental illness and diagnostics are controversial. And it's not an exact science, and we know that. Uh, People don't fit neatly into these, like, criteria boxes that we have in our diagnostic and statistical manual, which we use for diagnostics. Um, Everyone lies on a spectrum, right? And a lot of us have experienced some of these symptoms or... Or, you know, some of these situations at various points in our lives, it doesn't mean we have a diagnosable mental illness, but we experience elements of mental illness. And um, things change, and our understanding changes, and our definitions change. And as we know, the, the cultural climate that we're in changes. Things are so different for us and even what kiddos are exposed to than when we were growing up, right? Sure. You know, I remember waiting five minutes for the internet to connect and sitting there and playing Minesweeper. (laughs) It's a really different environment and it's a different... Anyway, so like you said earlier, take what we say with a grain of salt. Um, But those of us in the counseling profession are less focused on the definitions and the diagnoses as we are on like helping people cope with whatever they're dealing with and helping people be adaptable and flexible and you know be able to work through what's going on and it's not a one-size-fits-all approach at all and we try to be really good at like meeting the client where they're at so i just want to say that what would be a one-size-fits-all i'm thinking like sparta when if the baby looked funny they just threw it over a cliff One size fits all. No look good. Overclip you go. Well, I can use myself as an example. So, I am trained in writing. So, I minored in creative writing in college. I've been writing in a creative sense since early high school. And um, I specialized in nonfiction and poetry, right? A really common tool for counseling that is pretty effective is journaling. And because it it helps you organize and process your thoughts on paper versus just, like, replaying those tapes in your head, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can get a little more clarity and see some patterns when you put it out on paper. X, Y, Z. I've had so many counselors try to push journaling on me, but journaling is not a skill that I will gravitate towards or use because... Um, because creative writing serves a different purpose for me. And, like, my emotional attachment to creative writing is so different than 
yes, let me use this as a as a positive coping skill for my anxiety or depression. You know? So, like, and I've had to have that conversation of, like, if you tell me to journal, I'm not going to do it. Well, if someone tells you to do a lot of things, you don't necessarily do them. I'm going to go out and make this metaphor. It'd be like walking in and complaining that you have carpal tunnel and you're wearing a wrist brace. And then your doctor's like, well, have you tried wearing a wrist brace? Yeah. And you're like, yes. Here, look with eyeballs. See upon wrist. And they're like, well, yeah, but have you tried this wrist brace? It's a slightly different color. And the intention is that it looks prettier or something. And you're like, no, I'm already doing that. Give me something else. And similar to that, there's so many biases in the mental health system and the medical system, which we know of, you know, because... People of color are not taken as seriously. Women of color are treated as if they experience less pain. You know? Is that why, like, they die four times more often in childbirth? Possibly. It's possibly one of those factors. And, you know, the medical and mental health system just treats people so vastly different. If you're if you're lower income, if you're a person of size, like, you are automatically labeled with all these stereotypes about what you are and are not doing. If you're a person of size, it's you're automatically assumed to not engage in fitness activities and health activities, right? And we obviously know that's not true because size does not equal fitness and wellness. I'm thinking of Lizzo, who is super fit, has amazing like breath control and lung capacity because she she does this amazing. Who's Lizzo? Lizzo is uh, she's an artist. She was like a musical artist. We've heard some of her songs on the radio. This is where I would edit in, like, grasshoppers chirping. <laughs> chirp, chirp. No, just just keep, keep, keep doing Lizzo it. Lizzo is a, a black woman. Um, she's a little bit of a bigger, of a bigger size. And yet she, pl- she does, her dance routine is really, like, intense. Okay? And she plays flute on top of it. On stage. Going through all this. Like, she is amazing. And yet, if you looked at her and made all sorts of assumptions, you would think, like I said, she's not in, she's not engaging in fitness or she's not a fit person. Anyway, thank you for my tangents, but I feel like this is important to talk about. Um... Yeah, I have seen some ADHD in my time. Some pretty significant ADHD. And so... So a lot of people are diagnosed with this. I know a lot of people who have trauma that are diagnosed with ADHD and they just, like, throw Ritalin at them. And, like, you have trouble concentrating? Here, take some Ritalin. And then it ends up not being ADHD because it just makes them hyperactive. That's another good point, is that in kiddos, the symptoms of trauma are very, very similar to ADHD, so it often does get misdiagnosed. Right. So, and I want to skip, because we don't have, like, unlimited time, um, I want to get to my opinions about the current... Okay, that's just... I'm not even gonna... All right. So when I was in kindergarten, when I was going into kindergarten, I have actually a pretty clear memory of going with my father to a uh, a district building that was in the same campus, I suppose, as the Melville School, the competing high school. And it was like an old building. It smelled like plaster and brick. And 
on the third floor, I went in with this woman and we were there for maybe 50 minutes. And I thought that it was like a game. I thought that she was like babysitting me or something, but she kept giving me like very intermittent attention where she would give me a task or something or put something in front of me. And then she would just lean back and look at me and I'd be like, what are we, what are we doing? Yeah. And I was clearly frustrating her because I kept trying to play with her. She would, I remember I had to walk across a balance beam and I kept pretending that I was, I don't know, a bird or something. And she just kept getting really frustrated that I wasn't following through with the tests appropriately, but I didn't know what was going on and no one told me. And afterwards, you know, I'm sitting on the bench playing with my hair or something and she's talking to my father in a very serious way. And I thought I was in trouble. And suddenly she's very friendly and is like, no, 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 okay, have a nice day. And then she goes back and starts writing things down in her office. And my dad escorts me and I think we got ice cream or something afterwards. The point is, is they were giving me a test for some kind of learning disability. And I was, I fell within a margin of non, not being diagnosable, but not being totally typical. And then, so, you know, whatever, I ended up doing pretty okay. I had to work pretty hard in school, but every once in a while I'll bring that up and Megan will say, well, yeah, of course you had to work harder than your older sister. Uh, your older sister doesn't have a learning disability. I'm like, aw. I mean, I did, I managed to do okay. This all brings me to when they, when my father got diagnosed with ADHD, he said the medication was like opening the clouds. He suddenly could sit for longer periods of time and he was on a different medication than I was and so he said why don't you go to your doctor and talk about this and so the first doctor I went to was like here take this stimulant and if it makes you feel high don't take it anymore and I remember thinking that was a really strange thing to do and then I took it and suddenly I noticed just it wasn't that the clouds necessarily parted and it wasn't that like just the natural anxiety of being a millennial in the modern age cleared up it was that I, I was sitting and I wasn't doodling and I wasn't swinging my legs. I was just typing at my desk. And I could suddenly concentrate on the same thing for longer periods of time. And I remember texting one of my friends and being like, is this what happens? And he was like, no. If like I were to take that medication, I wouldn't sleep for three days. And I was like, really? Because I've been taking it every morning for the past week. He was like, wow, that's some serious ADD there. And the first couple week I, weeks I took it, I would take a nap after taking what is basically an amphetamine. That reminds me of um, something I saw on Facebook, a dialogue between a couple of people I have on Facebook. <laughs> the first side effect to being properly medicated is anger because you realize how easy something has been for other people or you realize what other people have experienced and what you haven't experienced or what you have experienced and other people haven't experienced. I guess that would make... Some kind of sense. It reminds me of the time that I, um, when I got properly medicated and my brain was quiet. Yeah. Yep. You know, I didn't have just racing thoughts daily. I was like, this is, you mean other people don't experience that? You know? Or when I got, when I could sleep and when I was sleeping through the night, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what that's like. Yeah, it's something else. Uh, and I think people can tell. Like, it's not just that if you're properly medicated, you don't experience all of these weird drugged up senses. You tend to have a little bit more of a typical response to stuff. But 
like other people can notice. They're like, wow, you just seem like calmer or you seem happier or you seem more stable or something. And you're just like, yeah, it's funny how that happens. And whether or not being in nature for most of your life would have fixed that automatically when you're trapped in the modern world, that's okay. If you have to, if you, if being Medicaid, Medicaid makes things more survivable for you, then that's just what needs to happen. This avocado toast is absolutely to die for. You're fantastic. You're welcome. We had extra avocado because I'm going to make some guacamole later. Mm. So I figured we might as well uh, go for broke, uh, pun intended, uh, and have some avocado toast. Okay, so I want to make a very quick digression. I don't even know if it's a digression because we're more than halfway through this through this episode. Sensitive topic post-traumatic stress in veterans very sensitive topic i don't want to get all into it i don't we don't need to be doing that here but when you were in the mental i also think it's funny I, right now i think i'm drinking a me mental health mocha <laughs> which megan described when she worked at the hospital they would call it if you put cocoa mix into your coffee yeah that's... so like cheers mental health mocha cheers um I have, okay, so to clarify, we're just talking about post-traumatic stress in the veteran population. Are we not talking about civilians right now? No, we're just talking about in the veteran population. I want to make, and I, just a tiny facet of it. Okay. I want to make a comparison and have you interpret it. I listened to an audiobook called Tribe, and it was about, it's not, I don't agree with everything in it, but it's about the individual has been risen in our culture to an elevation where it completely disconnects you from your community. And when you have a tribe, quote unquote, community, when you have a network of no more than 150 people that you can actually emotionally care about and you recognize their face and you have a physiological reaction to seeing their face every day, mm -hmm. it creates a totally different societal structure and a totally different sense of community responsibility. So some of the things that corporations and politicians get away with that affect Millions of people would not be tolerated in a smaller society or in a more personal society because everyone would hold them accountable. They would have them strung up, you know, bankster justice. There would be no, oh, well, this is just, if I don't do blank, then I don't get paid and that's fine. Like, no, people would look at you and say, that's wrong. We're going to not tolerate it. Like someone who's constantly ripping off the system is eventually held accountable by their neighbors just by the animalistic societal pressure um okay so in it it discusses the different reactions to post-traumatic stress from when it was discovered for lack of a better term in the united states to when the book was published which i think it was published in 2011 i'm gonna interrupt you just for a second keep that thought Right? Oh, geez. Okay. Um, okay. I'm working on it. Mm. So the reason you and I are using the term post-traumatic stress instead of post-traumatic stress disorder is because post-traumatic stress and the symptoms that come with that are a very normal reaction to those deeply traumatic events. And if you look through the criteria for PTSD, it, it requires some pretty significant criteria in terms of what you've experienced. Um, so after working with veterans um a lot of them who did have post-traumatic stress i mean i don't i don't like the term disorder when it comes to to that cluster of reactions 
because I feel like it's pretty normative and it's pretty understandable. And yeah, um, I think pathologizing it to that degree um, can actually be harmful because it, it helps to reinforce stigma. Um, and of course, we're always combating stigma. But anyway, that's why we're using the term post-traumatic stress and leaving off the D. Thank you. Yeah, you're great. I love you. So I managed to cling to this. He draws, this author draws a huge comparison between the nation of Israel and their policy on military citizen requirements and America during a certain time period, of course, you know, whatever, read the book. It's actually pretty good. I don't agree with a lot of it, but you don't have to agree with it. And if I did agree with all of it, it probably wouldn't be that well researched. Um, so when you have someone who has been required to do, perform tasks or actions outside of their individual morality, and then when they try to re-engage in society, they are constantly reminded that they are different than the general population. Mm -hmm. You get a higher, this is his opinion, you get a higher, um, rate of disabling characteristics and poor ability to reintroduce yourself into that society because you're constantly being othered. And we know, you know, queers and all of the people with disabilities and anyone who's not something that they are supposedly told that they should be are constantly being othered. And it can be very damaging. And what it does is it, it can just take, it takes people so much more mental energy to, adjust to what they have done and where they are now. For example, um, my sister told me, she's a dietitian, that individuals who are diagnosed with diabetes at a younger age um, have a like wildly higher success rate in managing the stress that comes with having diabetes, regardless if it's type 1 or type 2, simply because they have been accustomed to that. And the mental load the burden on their physical and mental energy to manage that if they get diagnosed in their 20s or in their 30s is so much greater that the stress just causes so many physiological disorders. So in Israel, everyone's required a minimum of two years military service. Okay. And there's a bunch of records of people during this two-decade period where simply because everyone knows what it's like and everyone knows that it's required of you, there is no immediate recognition of your military service they just treat you like a person mm. the equivalent of walking into a room as a lesbian and instead of being like oh you're a lesbian people are just like hello tori how are you today sure. you don't have to constantly defend your otherness so there is no military discount because why would you need one mm. and the military discount doesn't really economically affect the people in america who get it who receive it and also, it just constantly makes them feel other. So you have people that are much more easily reintroduced, and they have a lower rate of, quote-unquote, disordered relations to having experienced some of the same events as people in America who are constantly reminded, like, thank you for your service. That doesn't really mean anything to a bunch of people because you have no idea what you're thanking them for. So all this to say, oh, no. I need more coffee. This is not... Uh, okay. Um, so, what... what? Oh, generational differences. All of this to say, 
Vietnam was the beginning of um, considering these things post-traumatic stress and all these other things. Yeah, a lot of the research that we have comes out of the military post-Vietnam. Right. So, But there's also a generational difference. And there's a lot of media coming out now that millennials were finally entering the workforce and were dissatisfied with the government and were dissatisfied with the infrastructure and all these other things because we were raised, a lot of us who were fortunate enough to have a reliable source of you know, parenting or income or food or like going to school regularly, we were told and we were trained from an early age that the government has your back. And when in fact it doesn't. So it's not necessarily that males or females respond differently to this. It's that now we're experiencing a generation who's going into the military and they don't have the coping mechanisms to literally just deal with normal stress of paying bills or making your own doctor's appointment or doing self-care because the baby boomer generation was like, suck it up and do it anyway. When no, like at some point you have to recognize that you yourself need to take care of yourself. So not only do you not have those coping skills, but then you're put into a situation where the government's not got your back. And then you have all these traumatic things happen to you. Bam! My theory and the whole point of saying this is that I bet our generation all things being equal, will probably suffer from a higher rate of those kinds of failure to re-establish yourself than previous generations because they don't have the emotional tools. Megan, stop me. Oh my gosh. So that's a huge bunch of concepts that you just laid out. And if I can try to summarize um, what I'm thinking. So our generation has been I feel like the and we're millennials right let's just throw that out there um we've been subjected to a bunch of really interesting dynamics as far as like the the populace engaging with the government right and the government has been at war a lot of people would say unjust wars for the majority of our lifetime and um we are now being exposed to information about the ways that our government has failed and you know we have been force-fed education right as a solution and as a a very narrow definition of education you're right a very narrow definition of education saying you know all you have to do is go to college and get a four-year degree and like you'll be okay and yet wages have stagnated and so now we are struggling to pay our student loans that we were told we had to get um and uh all of that, I mean, there's a bunch of things that come with being a millennial and being a per- young person in this day and age that I think put us at a disadvantage. Second thing I will say is that we come from smaller families. I mean, my both my parents come from huge families that had more sources of support within the family and within the community. And now we are really disengaged from that. I mean, your family's tiny. I only have the one brother. You only have the one sister. And it's just, it's less of a network. And so we've had to look outside of the family for that network. And on some level, it doesn't exist because a lot of institutions in our society have broken down. Those institutions used to be, you know, education, civic engagement, religion. um, Even cultural expression of religion. For example, Christmas in America is now definitely a cultural holiday. Exactly. Um, But people are less engaged on kind of that neighborhood level, kind of like what you're talking about. I hope I spilled coffee. Um, and so that provides us a lot less support. And then, of course, that overlaps with the the generation of folks who are going into the military. And so they kind of get this double whammy of being exposed to different warfare, different types of combat, 
different culture in the military. And a lot of post-traumatic stress that people experience coming out of the military is actually from experiences they've had within the military and by their own by their own comrades and, you know, Marines and soldiers and airmen and sailors. Um, and that's really tragic. It's really tragic the way our military fails young veterans by putting them in harm's way from their own people. Um, but the, the style of, of combat is very different in our wars in the Middle East. I mean, more people are surviving horrendous injuries because our technology has improved and our... Our medical field technology has improved, and there's a lot more um, IEDs out there, uh, improvised explosive devices that are causing these these injuries that people are now surviving, and there's higher and higher rates of you know traumatic brain injury, and all of that is is I think leading to to this more pervasive post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think you're right. I think that people who have served in the military are othered in these really, I don't, I don't know the right word, like systemic, systemic, but also covert ways. Mm. Um, and the the rest the civilians don't always know how to how to support and how to engage um, folks who've served and I think that's why Vietnam was so tragic for for the vets who served was because they were immediately othered and they were rejected when they came back they were not embraced I mean they were they were vilified for having served in that conflict and they did not have the support they deserved or the understanding they deserved. Um, and that sucks because a lot of them were just following orders and a lot of them didn't choose to be there, right? A lot of them were drafted and they were just doing their best. And even the folks who enlisted were just doing their best and doing what they were told they should be doing. Um, also consider that in the U.S. government, there were at least... 24 confirmed cases of COs that would be conscientious ex uh, objectors in World War One who were abused and beaten to death on military bases across the United States by their comrades because they refused to fight in World War One and they were instead brutalized to the point of death. And that's just those that were absolutely confirmed. You can only imagine the number of those. If you actually refused to fight, they would have, you know, tested things on you and just abused you as a CO in military base training. I mean, the military is, is very complex. And one thing I, I always try to say is that veterans and people who have served are such a diverse group of people and their motivations are always so different. And there is no, there is no stereotype. There's no one way or cluster of, of group characteristics that equal a veteran. Um, or someone who has served. They're... I, I strongly caution against like really general statements when it comes to the military population. Um, but they, they don't get the support they need, and their families don't get the support they need, and it's really complicated because a lot of people 
join the military because they don't have opportunities elsewhere. And that is seen as kind of their path to, to a better life. Um, so how can we, in small ways, try to act on a cultural change? Um, you know, one of the things that, that, that we in the mental health field, and especially the crisis field, look for is how, how connected is someone? How much of a support network do they have in the community, in their friend circle? And how do we get them better connected? Because when you are connected and you have the support of that community, you, you have people you can trust to support you. And oftentimes you can pay it forward and support other people. And so rebuilding those ties that have broken down in our society, I think are really important. Um, and what I've found especially helpful for people is that uh, routine and ritual connected to that, that network is important. So like, if you're a person of faith, can you get connected to a religious community? Um, people you see regularly who, who will notice and will reach out to you if, if you're gone for a period of time. You know, people who are going to show up at your door looking for you um, because that really kind of helps keep people here with us. Um, bowling leagues are a great example of this um, because it's it's sport and it's fun connected to... <laughs> it's not a sport. <laughs> it is absolutely a sport. <clears throat> but it's connected to that community engagement, you know, um, and, and it keeps you accountable to people. Um, you know, getting set up with a gym buddy. Uh, oh, gym buddies, it's a sacred thing. And having that, that schedule, you know? Yeah. Um, that's why... Group, day. And that's why we use a lot of group therapy in working with vets. Um, because it, it allowed them time and space to process, but also time for them to be with people who had a shared experience. And, um, you're right. A lot of veterans really struggle with this idea of thank you for your service. What I've tried to do, um, is I don't, I, I try not to single out people for being veterans because a lot of people don't like to be identified as such when they don't have control over that information. Um, but also when I've worked with veterans and when I've learned from veterans is that it's so much more meaningful to, to get the details of their service, to go deeper than just thank you for your service, you know, ask them where they served, what, what unit they served with, um, where they were deployed, if they were deployed. Um, and really kind of coming to the table with that base knowledge versus just this this catchphrase that um, that has become meaningless. Does that make sense? Yes. Let's all just be a little bit more mindful before we assume we understand what someone is experiencing. Yeah. And also, if you want to have a mental health mocha, go ahead and pour that cocoa powder into your coffee because you deserve it. I want to make one more statement, and I know that this is this is not giving this situation the time or airways it deserves, and it might be another episode someday, but there are a lot of myths about suicidal ideation and suicide out there. Um, and one of the most pervasive and I think and harmful that I've heard from people directly is that there's this fear that if you ask someone if they're having suicidal thoughts that you will plant the idea in their head or you will increase the likelihood of them carrying that out. And I want to say that that's false. Um, you, your questions are not going to make someone have suicidal ideation. And if you can kind of create a space where they feel free disclosing that information to you, that is a pathway to get them the help they need. Um, so if that's something you're worried about in 
a friend or a family member, um, it's okay to ask them if they're thinking about hurting themselves or taking their life. And then, of course, you know, look up the appropriate resources in your area to kind of help that person. That, so. that is pretty heavy. That's just a, but a, good. a myth that I felt like I, I needed to address, and I know that's not giving that particular situation enough airtime, but we it probably deserves its own show. We can. We can do our own show. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need more coffee in another of these pecan bars. <laughs> but cheers. Cheers. Take care of yourself, y'all. Yeah. It's a... Uh, you know, stay well and stay safe out there.